0: Well, we are working our way through First Thessalonians, and, and as a pastor, it's always hard to know what speed to go. Um, there's times I've taught the whole chapter in one setting, you know, do a whole book if there's five chapters in five weeks, and then there's other times that you take a whole year to teach a book that you could have taught in five weeks, but yet as you're wrestling with it as a pastor, you really come to the place to say, Lord, what is the word the Rhema word for your body of Christ at Calvary Chapel Ross. More those who are online with us around the world. I have so many friends that have contacted me uh, that I've known through the years that are parts of this country and they've tried and they tried to find a church that just teaches the Bible, worships the Lord, teaches the Bible without an agenda, without feeling like they're being uh, manipulated, without feeling like there's... a Uh, some other kind of bent just shepherds loving the sheep feeding them the word of God and and uh, many of them I mean they've been trying for 10 years and this last week talking to a dear wonderful friend and and uh, same exact thing he'd been a couple of churches thought he could make it but uh, the politics were greater than the spirituality and it makes it very very hard So to you who are listening, live streaming or listening to the message tomorrow, whatever, God bless you and strengthen you as well. So we've just started the book of 1 Thessalonians, and I'm prepared to teach it all the way to verse 10, but we just don't have time. So we're only going to look at verse 4 and 5. But you guys remember this is Paul's second missionary journey. Him and Barnabas separated after the first missionary journey, and so he picks up a guy named Silas, or Salvanus he's called here, and Timothy, from the area of Lystra, his dad was a Greek, his mom was a Jew, and he had never been circumcised, so Paul circumcised him, because Paul's ministry was first to the Jews, after that to the Gentiles, not to be righteous or to keep the law, but just simply so he could go into the synagogues with Paul. And, um, and so he became, really, these two guys became like his two sons in the faith that he entrusted much. And... Uh, it's interesting because they thought they were going to be in Asia Minor, which is the country of Turkey today. But God said, No, no, no. They get to the edge to the coast, there on the Aegean Sea, Troas, and God and, and, and Paul had a vision of a guy saying, Come over to me, over oh, referring to Europe, Greece. So Paul went to Greece, to Philippi. Wasn't a guy there, it was a bunch of women, which Paul never would have went. He would have said, Oh, that's not from the Lord if it was women saying, Come on over here. Um But it was a a group of women and uh, that church of Philippi. But as you remember, if you read Acts 16, he was beaten up badly, put in prison. And about midnight, they began to praise the Lord. And the jail doors opened up. And Paul preached to the Philippian jailer, but he left town. But unfortunately, those who hated Paul followed him 100 miles all the way to Thessalonica. Now, he had gone through Berea and then to Athens, and now he's in Corinth. And in Corinth, most likely, is where he's hearing about the difficulties of the Thessalonians. He, he's heard about their persecution. It's continued on after he left, and it's causing many, many trials for them. And then they're hearing some false teaching opposite of what he taught him when he was there concerning the return of christ namely they were being taught if somebody dies before the rapture they don't make it to heaven (laughs) they don't they don't get raptured they don't get to go and paul's like no 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 we're gonna he's gonna have a uh, cover that thoroughly and then um they lived in a very very pagan culture and it's hard to know just what you know is culturally acceptable and and what is culturally sinful. And again, us looking at it, you know, a couple thousand years in the distance living in a country that was once established on Christianity, we could say, oh man, all of that. But it wasn't so easy for them. So Paul has to help them to see the light of what it means to live a a godly life. And he's going to cover that. And then he says, whether you're struggling successfully or struggling and lo- a losing battle with the flesh, with living a sinful life, there is no wrath for you. God did not appoint you as his child struggling or not. A wrath in the tribulation period or uh, definitely not wrath before him at the judgment seat of Christ and uh, comforts them greatly with this knowledge. So the first time we taught, I was on grace and peace. A powerful message that I learned from my pastor, Chuck Smith, and it needs to be said from time to time. Not every gospel will I do it, or every epistle will I do it, but I do it. And then we looked at verse 2, how Paul was praying for them and the prayer life of saints, how important that is. And then last week, we looked at the labor of love, the work of faith, and the patience or the endurance and confidence of the Christ's return. Hanging in there through these trials, Christ is going to come back. Never soon enough, but he is coming back. So we looked at last week, verse 2 and 3. We think, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. And then today now, verse 4 through 10. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Actually, we're going to just look at verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we are among you for your sake. Well, first of all, I am going to take a moment here on the concept of election out of verse four. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, unfortunately especially in the Calvary Chapel movement, Calvinism has permeated. With Calvinist um, Christianity is very much an academic pursuit, so a lot of the writings are out there are Calvinism. But Calvin couldn't have been more wrong concerning the doctrine of predestination election, which is almost one and the same to a Calvinist, and it's really not in the Bible. But in the Calvinist mindset, election happened before time began. And God knew every hurt human being that would ever exist. And he elected some for heaven and he elected others for hell. And that's their doctrine. And, and so today, if you go online, you hear of these Christian rock bands or Christian, uh, you know, very, very stately Christian People who walk away from God. And it's always on this issue. They basically have been told there's Calvinistic Christianity and no Christianity. <laughs> the only true Christianity is Calvinism. If you don't accept Calvinism, then you don't have true Christianity. So they're saying, okay, that's the way they've been raised. And if this is true Christianity, I reject it. Because the Calvinistic teaching is, at best, determinism. That is the doctrine that all events, including human actions, are ultimately determined by causes eternal to the will. At worst, it's fatalism, and that's what I think Calvinism is. It's a doctrine that events are fixed in advance so that human beings are powerless to change them. Now, you may say, well, Calvin didn't quite teach that. Well, let's look at four of his quotes. (laughs) These are right from John Calvin's writings. By predestination, we mean the eternal decree of God by which we determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or the other of these ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or to death. Those are Calvin's words. Look at the next quote out of book 3 chapter 23. Individuals are born who are doomed from the womb to certain death and are to glorify him God by their destruction. The next one out of book 3 chapter 23 as well, a quote by Calvin. Therefore, those whom God passes over, he condemns. And this he does for no other reason than that he wills, to exclude them from the inheritance which he predestines for his own children. And here's another quote. Same, chapter, book three, chapter 23. Many professing a desire to defend deity from an individual charge admit the doctrine of election, but deny that, Anyone is reprobate. For this do ignorantly, childishly, since there could be no election without its opposite, retribution, a reprobation. So Calvin, these are just a few, but Calvin basically says if you have a problem with God electing before the first second ever clicked on the clock, <laughs> before there was an earth, before time began, God, knowing all things, knew every human being that would ever live on this earth. If you have a problem with God choosing a select few, the elect, to go to heaven and selected the rest of them to go to hell, which equally glorifies him. All of those people he did not elect to go to heaven, that he elected to go to hell, are equally glorifying him. And if you as a Christian have a problem with that, it's because you're not elect. Because the elect... Get it. No. It's exactly how it seems. It makes God evil. It makes him a liar for saying we have free will. And and if you're wanting to be saved, but before time began, you weren't elect, it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to hell. And if you don't want to be a Christian, but you were elected, it doesn't matter. God's going to get you there, period. This is not in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it is so opposite the Bible. What is biblical election and predestination? Well, first of all, biblical election simply says this. If a person believes in Jesus as Savior, they are one of the elect. If a person does not believe that Jesus as Savior, that person is not an elect, but they can change that status very quickly by believing. Election is not some esoteric thing God did by determining ahead of time who would believe or not believe. Now, I, I do have a much more in-depth teaching on this in the book of Ephesians, um, and even more so uh, in the Bible colleges and stuff. But you know, I, I, there's so many aspects, and there's a lot of verses that, that Calvinists like to use that have nothing to do with the election but because the words there, they, they, they twist it and make it sound like God did this. But no. Election is God's choice of those who believe in Christ is one of the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Election or chosen it could be translated either way. Refers to God's choosing in Christ, a people whom he destined to be holy and blameless in his sight. For example, in Second Thessalonians two thirteen, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose, elected, chose or elected, you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, he, he makes it clear. Now I understand the Calvinistic glasses. Sees, there it is. God elected before time. Uh, Who's going to be saved and who's not? There it is right there. Not at all. If you look at it, this is not an individualistic thing. You see, I, I do not think that God elected an individual person except for Jesus. There's really only three elect, if even that. I think there's just one. But the Bible clearly does say, and again, I have much more detailed notes other than here, but Israel, the nation of Israel is God's elect. He calls them that several times. Then he calls a person the elect, which is Christ. And he does that many times as well. And then the next, he does call the church. He doesn't call a bunch of individual believers. He doesn't call Jews individually elect a matter of fact he goes on to make it very clear that a Jew in and of itself doesn't make you the elect even though the nation of Israel is God's elect it's really only those who have the faith of Abraham that become the elect now who did Abraham have faith in the messiah <laughs> go back to genesis 14 before genesis 156 where it says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness. He had just met with Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High. A king and a priest, which can never happen in the Jewish system. They were very separated. But Christ is the king. And it clearly it was God, it was Christ that he had communion with. He gave him bread. He gave him a communion time there. But it's the nation of Israel, not individual Jews that are the elect. The only individual is Jesus and then in the church, again, it's not all these people are the elect. It's the church is God's elect. You see, if you try to make it individually, it starts getting weird. I've had this more than once where I'll be teaching out of Ephesians 5, and, and we are the, the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And, and people come up and go, it just sounds so homosexual. It just sort of grosses me out every time you say, I'm the bride of Christ. And it's a wonderful chapter. Yeah, when you make election individualistic, it starts getting very weird. And that's only one of many of them. But collectively, we're the body of Christ. Collectively, we are the bride of Christ. So if you really want to look at it this way, I think there's only one elect, and that's Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus through the Old Testament (laughs) became in Christ, and they became the elect, whether they were Jews or not. We're studying that on Wednesday nights in Exodus. Many of the multitudes of other nations went out with Israel, and they were immediately counted as Israel just by getting circumcised and having the Passover. And of course, Rahab... (laughs) Was a prostitute from Jericho, a condemned people. Ruth, uh, also a Moabite from condemned people. All grandmothers and great-grandmothers of King David. So they were counted as Jews. So in the in the New Testament, it's those who believe in Christ are in Christ become the elect. So really, Christ is the elect, and everybody in Christ by faith are the elect along with him. That's what I think the Bible clearly says. The human election occurs in the union with Christ corporately. In Ephesians 1, 4, look at this. Just as he chose, elected us, how? In him. Before the foundation of the world. Not before time. But at creation, God predestined at creation that we should be holy without blame before in love. So understand, the Bible does not say anywhere before time God elected. It does say this, that God at creation, at the foundations of the world, predestined that whoever would be in him would become the elect. And the elect have also, on the other side of that, been predestined to be holy and without blame before him. And this is, again, where Calvinists make predestined election almost identical, two separate things. God at the foundations of the world Before the fall, before creation, we don't know. But while the foundations of the world were being laid, God predestined that every human being that would ever live on the planet who would believe in him, have faith in him, would be the elect. And once they're the elect, we're going to see in the conclusion today all kinds of blessed things that God's predestined. He's predestined that all things will work together for good. He's predestined that no weapons formed against us will prosper. He's predestined that we will one day be with him in heaven. He, he is guaranteed that one day we'll be in heaven, holy and righteous as he is. He's predestined those things. So once you're the elect, he's got a hold of you, and he'll, he will who began that good work will complete it. But this is a beautiful thing because somebody here goes, well, I, I don't believe in Jesus. Then you're not the elect. But I want to be the elect. Then believe in Jesus. You see, that's the truth of the matter. It's simply that. It's not some esoteric thing God did in this determinism, fatalism. I just, I just choose you. I don't choose you. Hell, heaven, 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 hell, hell, hell. And now we're here. I don't want to be saved. Well, you're going to be because God predestined you before the foundation of the world. No. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Our free will is really a free will. It's not a pretend free will. Okay? You can choose yourself into hell. Or you can choose yourself into heaven. Calvinism teaches that Christ's blood and his cross was only for the elect. But yet it repeatedly says for everyone, for the whole world. Christ's blood was shed not only for us who have believed, but for the whole world, he says in 1 John 2. And so Christ has paid the price. His blood has been shed for them. They won't be in hell because God's sending them there. They're going to be in hell because they did not choose the love of the truth. They did not choose the one way of salvation. So only in union with Christ do we become members of the elect. And no one is an elect apart from the union with Christ through faith. So, in conclusion on this, I, again, I could go on this for a long time, but I, number one, it, it's not a deterministic or fatalistic thing. God did this before time, and everyone goes where God determined where they where they where they will go. End of story. It's not the case. But very simply, before God predestined that those who believe in Jesus, Jew or Gentile, become one with Christ, right? John 17, Father, as I am in you and you are in me, that they would be in us and we in them in a perfect unity. So that's what he predestined, that those who believe become the elect, become in Christ. That those who, um, and they're in Christ, which means in him. We also become the elect of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. And you can go through chapter 1 of Ephesians. It says over a dozen times, I believe 14 times in the first chapter, in him are all of these things. Again, if a person believes in Jesus' Savior, they're the elect. If a person does not believe Jesus' Savior, they're not the elect but they can change their status by believing. Ephesians 13, look at this. In him you also trusted, believed, received, had faith in Christ. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. They were not sealed with the Holy Spirit before time ever began. Their choice, they trusted they believed after they heard the word of truth, after they heard the gospel. They put their faith in that gospel, in the work of Christ, and then they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for who? Everyone who believes, for the Jew verse and also for the Greek. And of course, John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him... They shall not perish, period. They shall have everlasting life, period. So again, it's it's not qualifying. This is Calvinism. Calvinism says there's real faith and there's not real faith. How do you know if you have real faith? Well, you're living this Christian life the way you should be. If you're not living this Christian life the way you should be, then you didn't really believe, which gives you no confidence in salvation whatsoever. Because if you noticed, as a human and as a Christian, we have ups and downs a lot. <laughs> and we have big ups and downs. I, I mean, I, I could say almost weekly, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. <laughs> Even after being born again and walking with the Lord almost my whole life now, I still say, oh, wretched man that I am. Okay? I, I am not, when I'm struggling with my flesh, thinking, oh, God's. I never was elected to begin with. Calvinists do. Oh, yeah. Not, not me, because I, I know I, the moment I believe. It doesn't say how much faith. It doesn't say what kind of faith. It, it just says believe. Faith of any kind is accepted. You will not perish, but have everlasting life. And this story, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Not according to Calvinists. <laughs> He already condemned the world before time began, but the world through him might be saved. It sounds like there's a lot of choice involved. He came to preach that they might believe, not there. It's already set if whether they're believing or not. So knowing, going back now, we're ended on that discussion. But knowing, beloved brother, your election. First of all, he says you're beloved. You're beloved. You're loved you're loved by God. God so loves the world. God did not give you his son going, you bunch of snakes. You don't deserve this. Here, take the son. Look at how bad it was. Far worse than I had planned on it being. I hope you're all happy. You didn't have to poke him so deep. I'll take you to heaven, you bunch of worms, but I don't want to. No out of love. I want to give you the best of the best. I, I want to give to you holding nothing back. There was nothing in the cupboard. There was nothing in the closet greater that God could have given you. If there was, he would have done it. As you read the end of Malachi, people were burdened by going to to, to up to the Jerusalem to worship. They were burdened by having to give finances. They were burdened having to give their sacrifices of different animals. Get everything singing, <laughs> so burdensome. You know, hearing Bible say, <laughs> so hard. And God finally just said, stop it. I don't receive it anymore. I don't want you to do it. And by the way, forgive me. I'm sorry I burdened you. Don't Don't come anymore. I don't want your offerings, your tithes, your sacrifices. I don't want them anymore. 400 years of silence. That silence was broken with the greatest prophet ever to live, John the Baptist, who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God in his love is saying, I am not man that you can compare me. You have no love for me, but I am going to first love you. And as I love you, then you're going to know love. And this is love, not that we love God, but that we know his love for us. We cannot understand love until we first understand that God loves us and he gave us everything, holding nothing back. No regret, no sorrow. He wonderfully, joyfully, and the Son... Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Where did that joy come from? The love for us, knowing that your heart would be changed and God's spirit could live in you and that you could live with him forever in heaven. He loves to hear your prayers. He loves to hear you sing. He wants to speak to you through the word. He loves you so much, he just sits here and counts every little hair on your head. You remember having babies? When they're young like that, and just sit there and sniff them and you know, look at their little ears and their little fingers. And I I, I never attempted to count every hair on their head because I they just couldn't do it. But God, that's He just loves us that much. So out of this love, He's now chosen that those who believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ would now become the elect with Jesus. Father, as I am in you, think about that a minute, as you are in me, they who have believed in your word that I've given to them have also believed that those who have believed would be in us and we in them in a perfect unity right? He's got us. I'm the good shepherd. Every sheep who comes in shall never perish, shall have everlasting life. John 10 sounds like like John 3, 16, but it's not. But then he goes on to say, everybody who comes unto me, all the sheep come to me are in my hand, and of them I lose nothing. And even greater than that, the Father who's greater in all in authority and not in substance, there's only one God. But He has the other hand. (laughs) And He's not gonna let you go. (laughs) Somehow, if the child can shake loose the dad's hand on the street corner, mom still got him, or vice versa, right? One of us has always got you, no matter how rebellious you are, (laughs) no matter how much you struggle with the flesh, we got you. He's greater than all. This Is to the glory of the Father that everyone that has come unto me, I should lose nothing, but should raise them up on the last day. And so he loves us. He's elected us out of that love. And so now we are elected. We're never losing that election. We were given to it by grace and mercy his blood and we're going to keep it by your obedience and by your tithing might we're checking that we're checking your bank accounts by the way no how do we we got it as a gift how do we keep it as a gift by his grace by his mercy when we stand before God in heaven why should I let you in my heaven have you seen the last 10 years how I lived I know I was 80 to 90. I could barely get out of bed. But I was holy. I deserve it. No, no, we're all going to heaven by God's graciousness. And mainly by his love that he gave his only begotten son, that he died for us. And so I used to love what Javern and McGee said. He says, God loves us, but his love didn't save us. It was the love of sending his son to die on the cross And his blood is what saved us. How true it is. It's based on a real substance. And so what happens when you love somebody? You choose them, right? (laughs) God loves us. We love, we believe in him. He chooses us. It makes complete sense. Now, to the Jews listening to this in Thessalonica... They would have thought, now I know Moses is chosen. I know great men like David and Solomon and Jeremiah are chosen. But you're saying, little old me? This Jew in Thessalonica, I'm, I'm equally chosen by God as Noah? <laughs> yes. Do you remember Jesus' teaching? He says, hey. Out of all the men who have ever lived on planet Earth to this moment, there has never been a greater human being than John the Baptist. You guys remember this? But he said, in the kingdom of God, after the death and the resurrection, the least Christian, the absolute worst Christian who has ever been, me, I'm sure, he is greater than John the the Baptist. We are the elect. We're, we're greater than anyone before the cross has ever been. And we are the elect, the bride of Christ. We are without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, that which they could only look and and, and, and long for in the Old Testament. Angels, Peter says, looked into it, and they were like, how can this be? It's just like it blew their minds. They, they had to wait to see it because they just couldn't wrap their theology, their, their, their minds, those angelic minds. I don't know how smart those guys are. I don't know if there's any angels that are on the Mensa. Do you guys know? But they, they couldn't figure it out. They had to wait to see it. And so again, we have the greatest privilege of being the bride of Christ. Well, verse five. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sakes. Now, he's going to go into this in more detail in 1 Thessalonians 2, how they did not receive the word of God as the word of God from mere men, but as it was in truth the word of God. But Paul, I think, is comparing as he's in Corinth. How the word of God came to them in power in the Holy Spirit. Now, where did he go after Thessalonica? He went to Berea. I don't think they had the same experience there. The men listened to Paul. There wasn't a movement of power in the Holy Spirit. They're like, "Eh, we got to study on this a few months or years. We'll get back with you, Paul. But, you know, they didn't persecute him. They didn't reject him. He was happy about that. Then he went to Athens, you guys remember this, in Acts 17, where at lunchtime there's this amphitheater and and around it are all the gods they ever could, in the whole world, know about. And there was even one to the unknown God, in case they offended a god by not knowing who he was. And Paul, very eloquently quoting the Stoic and the Epicurean philosophers, I want to talk to you about this, the unknown God. And he preaches Christ. And they they laughed at him. When he started talking about the death and resurrection, they laughed at him. And there was like a couple of people he named that got saved. After that, he went to Corinth. And he went there with his tail between his legs. We can read about it in 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, I did not come with excellency of speech. Just tried that in Athens. It didn't work so well. What I wanted, what happened in Thessalonica. Remember, this Thessalonians letter is the first letter Paul ever wrote. And he's like, man, when I came to you, I wanted in Corinth what happened in Thessalonica. That I preached the word and it was simple and it wasn't eloquent. It was just the raw facts, but it didn't matter. God's spirit was greater than my words. The power of God through his word, that sharp two-edged sword that pierces between the thoughts and intent of the heart. That pure word of God, it just did exceedingly abundantly above what I could ask or think. It was a mighty move. Well, that did happen in Corinth, guys. Paul came saying, I came to you determined not to preach anything but just Christ and him crucified. And then step back and say, God, it's got to be the power of the gospel. It's got to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And indeed, it was Again, in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. When you believe, you've been touched by the power of God. You've been touched by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a great thing about us as Christians. The Holy Spirit is constantly evangelizing without stop everyone in the world. Did you know when you go to talk to somebody about Jesus, They've already been softened up by the Holy Spirit. John 16 says the Holy Spirit's in the world convicting men of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. So when you talk to somebody, you are not the first one to talk to them about Jesus. The Holy Spirit's been talking to them about Jesus. But when you come and they believe, they immediately bear witness with that Spirit and the Holy Spirit empowers them and they believe and they receive and this is what Paul saw. Oh, Paul was such a great orator. God, Paul was such a great uh, evangelist. Boy, read 1 Corinthians. When I came to you, I did not come, with excellently of speech. He goes on to say, when I came to you, I came in weakness. I came in fear. I came in trembling. You guys made fun of me. You made fun of me that I'm short. You made fun of me that my eyes were oozing. You guys... You guys said, oh, Paul's letters, now they're weighty, but his voice is contemptible. Can't stand to listen to that guy talk. His voice just, uh, fingernails on the chalkboard. This is what they said about him. He, it had to be the work of God. Now, this word power is translated sometimes the word miracle. But it also can mean virtue. It can mean miracle, it can mean power, it can mean uh, mighty works, but it can also virtue. So I don't think it was the power of miracles that they said, oh man, so many miracles happen. how could you not believe? No, I think he's referring to the power of living the Christian life. In context, and we'll see it next week as he goes on, that the thing we saw is that they saw Paul's example, it stuck out to them and said, "That's that's what I want," and they started following Paul's example, because the power, this dunamai, <laughs> this dunamus of the Spirit was giving them that great longing and desire to live a virtuous, godly life and a godly character. And let me let me tell you something: the greatest miracle that Jesus has ever done on earth was not raising the dead or changing the water to wine or whatever. The greatest work that Christ ever has done or will do on this earth is changing your wicked art. How do we know this for sure? We go to the very end of times. Right, right now, the rapture of church is going to come. All who have believed will be caught up together to be with the Lord. There'll be a seven-year tribulation period on earth and a seven-year feast in heaven for us who have believed. But after the seven-year tribulation period, we come with Christ. Christ comes to earth. There's a final battle, the Armageddon battle. And then he sets up a thousand-year millennial reign on the earth where we rule and reign with him as priests and kings uh, on this earth. But at the end of the thousand years, Jesus sets up in Jerusalem. There's special highways where people can get to Jerusalem and hear Jesus teach. They have a, a special river going from the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean, a special trees that you go there and the leaves heal you people will be healed physically they'll live a thousand years a a hundred year old person will be like a 10 year old child in that thousand year reign sort of like it was back at the beginning at the end of that thousand year reign satan is released to tempt man like he was in the garden And to the shock, after being physically with Jesus, after hearing Jesus teach, not for a few decades, but for hundreds, possibly, of years, up to a thousand years, when Satan says, aren't you sick of that, Jesus? he's, He's wanting us to be our Lord. Forget that guy. Wouldn't you rather be free to do all these other? And there's a large population of earth that sided with Satan, after having been with Jesus, taught by Jesus, up to a thousand years. What's that say about the miracle of us? We're in a sinful body, in a sinful world, and, and Satan himself is, is constantly with the demons trying to pull us every which direction and destroy our lives. And even against the flow, we have to swim Against the current uphill, we're doing it badly at times, (laughs) but we're doing it. Do you understand what a miracle that is? Your flesh wants to do what the world's doing. You're more comfortable going with the flow of a sinful world. You like the stuff that Satan says. (laughs) It'll feed my flesh. It'll give me glory to myself. But we're saying no. And we're humbling our hearts and crying out to Jesus to live a simple, godly life. It's a miracle of miracles of miracles. And when we get to heaven, we're going to see truly what a miracle that was. So the greatest work God is doing is not in us or not through us. Raising the dead, doing miracles. The greatest God, work God is doing on earth is in us. You understand that? Well, God's not doing miracles today. There's a miracle, there's a miracle, there's a miracle. (laughs) And you know what? These miracles of you having a new heart, having the Holy Spirit living in you, is the greatest work, far greater than The miracles that Jesus did while he was on earth. The work of the Holy Spirit. Well, then the last thing we're going to look at here, in much assurance. Now, Paul taught with great assurance, and a lot of commentaries go with that. Like, Paul was confident in in the gospel. But I'm going to look, and it can mean the same thing, talking about their insurance, The beautiful assurance that you have in Christ in our hearts the peace, the joy of our salvation. They had that because they were walking in love and faith and endurance. But sin mucks that assurance up. So I, I want to make something clear. here. Some people say, I oh, listen to Chuck, it sounds like he's saying you can lose your salvation. I'm like, go back and re-listen to it. You will not hear him say that you should doubt whether you're saved or not. He says this, when I'm walking obedient, I have a great assurance. When I'm walking sinfully, I do not have that assurance. If you want to live a life of assurance, you've got to walk in obedience. And assurance is that joyful feeling that I'm right with God. So when I start feeling or when I start sinning, my feelings don't feel like I'm right with God. My sin has separated me from God, and I hate that. <laughs> that's, that's like the worst spanking God can give me is just the Holy Spirit grieving within me and a sense of Jesus saying, "Hey, I'm here. I love you. I'm just a little offended. <laughs> you know, we're gonna have to have a time out here for a day or two <laughs> because you hurt me." That's the worst. Simply, this is the case. We think of David when he sinned with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. He's crying out because he lost his assurance in verse 10 and 12. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. David, do the sin, lost that feeling of assurance. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Possible in the Old Testament, impossible in the New Testament. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. There it is. Restore to me the joy of salvation, not not that you needed to get it again, and uphold me with your generous spirit. He didn't doubt his salvation. In Psalms 103, first four verses there, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives how many? All your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from destruction who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. And then in verse 10 of Psalms 103, he has not dealt with us according to our sins. Amen to that? (laughs) Nor punished us according to our iniquities. Christ has never given us what we deserve because we deserve destruction. I I love David in Psalm 130 where he says, man, if God started marking iniquities, who could stand? Nobody. But there's forgiveness with you. But going on in Psalm 103, verse 12, far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. And then down to verse 13 and 14, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And of course, in Psalm 23:1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He restores my soul. Oh, boy, amen to that. Amen to that. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. If a sheep goes wandering away and and the boy who's watching the sheep comes to the owner and says, hey, not my fault. That sheep is just disobedient. (laughs) Who's in trouble, the sheep or the shepherd? David makes that clear. And then he ends that in verse six by saying, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the New Testament, it's the same teaching. John 3.16 makes it abundantly clear. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11.3, says, Man, I fear for you, lest as a serpent deceived Eve, you would be deceived into from what? Bad, horrible teaching? No. From becoming a Calvinist <laughs> and having to write, a 5,000-page 5, book for every thought you have. He says this, that your minds would not be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, have everlasting life. We are saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It is a what? Gift of God. And Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, the gifts of God are what? irrevocable. We can't lose our salvation. The, the Calvinists say there has to be the persistence of the saints. We've got to see you walking in obedience in Christ until you die. And if not, we got to question whether you're ever the elect or not. That's, that's doing intellectual gymnastics with your brain. No, the Bible makes it clear. It's a gift. We didn't earn it. We never can earn it. And we're going to go to heaven because of a gift that God gave us. Not of any works, good or bad. Bad works don't take away our salvation. Good works don't help our salvation be more sure. Peter talks about this in verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. How? Through that abundant mercy. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not our perfect sinless life, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you and is kept by what the power of God through what obedient sinless life no through faith through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time however it's also true in 1 John 3:20 20 and 21 For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. He knows all things. So if your heart condemns you, it doesn't change the facts. You're still saved. But then he switches the other side of the coin in verse 21 of 1 John 3. Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. We have assurance. If your heart condemns you, you feel like you're not saved. You feel like... You're, you're more wicked than the devil himself. You, you, you feel like a loser, like you've disappointed God. And, and, and so I, I know how this works. When I, if I sinned against a friend of mine like that, he would never talk to me again. And, and I, I can't get past the human feeling of God never wants me in heaven. God doesn't ever want to talk to me again. He's given me too many tries and, and I just need to leave the church so I don't corrupt all you wonderful people. That, that's what happens when my heart condemns us. But it doesn't mean that's fact. (laughs) That's your feelings. And God's greater than your heart. God's greater than your feelings. God's greater than your sin. Where your sin abounds, what? His grace abounds more. He's not overcome by your sin. He knew every one of your sins before you were born. He died on the cross paying for them 2,000 years in advance for us. But if our heart doesn't condemn us, ah, (laughs) <laughs> the joy of our salvation, the sweet fellowship with Jesus. I, I, I feel the rejoicing of the Holy Spirit in me when I waken. I feel a joyful, no, no, no clogs in the pipe, <laughs> no hurdles around me when I come to the Word and I come to worship. I don't feel like a hypocrite. I just, oh man, this is I, I, so. Living a carnal life as a Christian is horrible. But living a godly life as a Christian, there is nothing more wonderful. But here's the truth. Jude 1, 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory without exceeding joy. There it is. In his presence with his glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and honor and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forevermore. So again, on election and predestination, God predestined at the creation of the world at some point that those who believe in him, trust in him, receive him, have faith in him, will become the elect. And then God predestined that the elect of God would be sealed with the Holy Spirit till the day of salvation. He would never leave us or forsake us. No weapons formed against us will prosper. God will turn all things around for good to those who love him. He will... One day, we one day will be standing with him in glory, perfect and righteous as Jesus himself. It says in Romans eight, twenty nine 29, 30, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. It's a done deal. Well, I don't know if it'll happen why we're in these sinful bodies, but it'll definitely happen once we leave. He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus, we're going to be just like him. This is what it's saying. He's the firstborn of what all of us will be like. And when I look at the resurrection Jesus, it looks really cool. Walking into wall, <laughs> walking through places without having to open the door and people didn't recognize him until he wanted him to and, and then ascending into heaven. It's a pretty awesome resurrected body he had. We're going to have one just like it. Moreover, whom he's predestined, them he called, which is the chosen, the elect, These he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified, our status in heaven. Once you become God's elect by believing in him, you will be in heaven glorified. This is the confidence we have. This is the absolute certainty of hope that we have. Secondly, it's fun, joyful, peaceful to walk with the Lord in obedience. And it's a very miserable place to walk as a Christian, in fleshly in a carnal way. Romans 8, 5, and 6 says this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. Remember Adam and Eve, the day you eat of that tree, you'll die. They didn't die physically, but they were separated from God shortly thereafter. Isaiah 59, 2 says it's our sins that have separated us from God. So even now as a believer, there, there is a grieving of the Holy Spirit, a quenching of the Holy Spirit, Um, and our Lord, our God is one Lord, that's, it's the quenching of Jesus, it's the grief of Jesus, but to be spiritually minded, on the flip side of that coin, to be spiritually minded is what? Life and peace, and I might add assurance. One more verse in Romans 8, 9 through 11, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, because indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So people sometimes, I'm in the flesh. No, not as believers. We struggle with the flesh. So you struggle with the flesh, but you're never in the flesh. Once God's Spirit enters our life, we're always in the Spirit. Even if we're grieving the Spirit, <laughs> He's still in us. He never leaves us or forsake us. But since Christ is in you, he says in verse 10 of Romans 8, the body is dead because of sin. Our sins that we are doing will not be counted against us to our judgment. There's no wrath that will come upon you for your sin. You'll lose reward. You'll you'll live (laughs) uh, in a very miserable way. But your, your sin will never again have power to condemn you or cause eternal death. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11. For since the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen to that. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for doing exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. Thank you for giving us grace to hear, even though the sermon went a bit long. We just ask that you would cause our hearts to soar in the knowledge of you, that there would be a clarity now as we read the Bible. There'd be a clarity as we pray that there would be a a real realization of our relationship with you and that we would not want to wrong you any more than we would want to wrong our own spouse or our best friend or our own children. That we want to love on you. We'll never love on you as much as you've loved on us. But Lord, we want to get our eyes on you as you're seated at the right hand of the Father. We want to ask ourselves, oh, heaven to come, I'm enduring. What will it be like? And, and then as our eyes are upon you, as we're thinking about the rapture, we're thinking about all the great saints we're going to meet from Adam and Eve all the way forward, and, and it purifies us even as you are pure as we have this heavenly mindedness. Help us, Lord, by your great grace to not live according to the flesh any longer. But as the spirit of God is in us, not just to have the spirit in us, but now to walk in the spirit. So we have the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the self-control abounding in us. And if you're here today, you've not received Christ, right now, just believe, that's it. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in the gospel. You died for my sins on the cross. You were buried on the third day, you rose again. I receive it. And now just start walking in him. If you're hearing this today or here in this building or online or you hear it 10 years from now, God loves you. He wants you in heaven, but you have the power of free choice. You have to choose him. You have to choose his work as a gift to you. And you will have eternal life. In Jesus' precious name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen, Amen.